Join me in your copy of God's Word in Genesis chapter 22. It's always good to uh, continue to see throughout uh, the year and throughout the weeks leading up to Easter these stories of ways that uh, our our gifts, our offerings, to the, uh, especially to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, are going to uh, support church planters uh, around North America and around the world and to see how uh, even through our gifts, we are continuing to reach the nations uh, for the gospel, even here in North America. And so we know that as a church, part of our vision is to be disciples who go to the neighbors and uh, to our neighbors and to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one way that you can help to send the gospel to the nations is by giving uh, to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which goes to uh, support church planters like those that we have seen uh, in the video today and in videos in past weeks and will continue to see. Uh, before we make our way into God's Word, I want to take care of a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, the first is uh, this afternoon, right after uh, worship, uh, there is a Vacation Bible School preview meeting slash lunch, and that will be in the last room uh, in the west hallway, all the way at the end of the hall. And so if you're interested in serving in Vacation Bible School, you don't have to have signed up for this lunch. Just go, and uh, and hopefully uh, that room will prove to be too small very quickly. So um, we can't do Vacation Bible School without the help of many volunteers. And in past years, we've had you know between 60 and 70 volunteers from the church, and uh, and, and it always helps to make that just a successful week of, of pouring the gospel into young hearts and lives and lives of families uh, throughout that week, that first uh, full week of June. So if you're interested in serving in Vacation Bible School, go to that lunch today. It'll be really important. Uh, secondly, there is March 31st, that's next Sunday, uh, in the afternoon, I think right after worship again, a meeting for, uh, for, for our youth students and their families, for their parents, and so uh, I believe there will be a lunch provided, and since I said it now, it's official, there will be lunch provided, and so if you are the, if you are the parent of a student between 7th and 12th grade, you want to be at that meeting to meet with, uh, meet with Corey, our student minister, and his wife Meredith as they talk through uh, some of their hopes for the youth and the Coming year, things that they're doing presently, uh, and to um, uh, uh, begin to uh, coalesce some uh, help and volunteers for their Disciple Now weekend, which will be uh, later in April. April 13th, I believe, is the Saturday. And so, um, Corey, if people are interested in serving with youth, can they come to that meeting next week? Okay. Corey said yes, so I've just committed him to that too. So if you're not serving with youth currently, but you think you'd like to, or you'd like to help out with the Disciple Now on April 13th, uh, go to that meeting next Sunday also. Then finally, um, uh, and uh, prior to making this announcement, some things have changed, but I want to let you know as a church about a potential international missions opportunity here in our own city All right, let's turn our attention then to God's word this morning as we continue in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, a very uh, familiar chapter to most of us. The uh, heading maybe over chapter 22 in your Bible says the sacrifice of Isaac or maybe the binding of Isaac. This is a story of a a test, uh, uh, an event where God tests Abraham. In fact, the first verse of chapter 22 tells us this. Tests are inherently designed to find out what's in a person, what sort of knowledge they contain. Uh, as many tests, standardized tests in schools, ACT, SAT, park testing, which is not a thing anymore, and I think some people are happy about that, I don't know. Uh, 
medical tests reveal whether we have uh, cancer or maybe some other uh, disease or condition. There are tests of character uh, that we have where we're put into a situation that tests what sort of integrity we have, what kind of compassion we may have for others. There's the bane of my existence, the presidential fitness test that we had to take in middle school. You had to do a bunch of pull-ups, and I couldn't do any at that time. Tests are designed to find out what's in a person, what kind of knowledge they have, maybe disease or physical condition, strength, character. Genesis 22 is a test also. It's a test given by God to Abraham that shows us not only what is in Abraham, but what is in God. When we are tested, when we are pressed, when we are squeezed from the outside, what comes out is, is uh, what is revealed in the test. And so here, God places Abraham in a situation where he will be squeezed, he will be pressured, he will, be, uh, 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 he will have press, uh, pressures come upon him in such a way that reveal what is inside Abraham. But we also see in this test what is inside God, what, what makes up God. Here in this passage, this chapter of Genesis, God tests Abraham's trust in the promise, the promise of offspring, promise of land, the promise of blessing to him and to the nations by asking him to offer his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. And in this chapter, God proves himself sufficient to supply for Abraham's every need. We'll find, I hope, through this chapter that true faith and true trust in God revealed through testing, finds its foundation in God's faithfulness and sufficiency. True faith in God finds its foundation, its resting place, in God's faithfulness and sufficiency. As we work our way through Genesis chapter 2 and come to the end of our, our passage this morning, I would hope to challenge us as a church this way, that if we say that we trust God, if we say that we're followers of Jesus, if we say that our faith is in Christ... We ought to then have a functioning faith. We ought to have a faith that works. A faith that that can work and does do things. A a faith that, that is not just held in our minds, but exercised in our hearts and with our hands. Would you stand with me as we read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19 this morning. There we read, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Now when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out in his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Father God, we ask your blessing upon this time as we study your word and hear from it and apply it to our lives. God, would you help us, like Abraham, to be those with a faith that functions, a faith that works. Grant us, God, by your grace, a greater obedience to Jesus, your son, greater understanding of your word this morning as we look at it. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. Let all that I say honor and glorify you this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight this morning, Father. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis chapter 22 is a chapter about a test, a test of Abraham and a test that reveals what is in Abraham, but also a test that reveals what is in God. Let's look first at what the test reveals about Abraham. The test here first reveals that Abraham is obedient. He's obedient. We see this in verse 3, when after God says uh, 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 in chapter 2, take your, or verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Verse 3 promptly tells us, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place which God had told him. There's no pause between the command of verse 2 and uh, Abraham's obedience in verse 3. But his obedience continues in verses 9 and 10 where we read, When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Again, no hesitation, no, no pause, no, no gap between the command and obedience here. Abraham is obedient. This test is revealing it. In fact, God even tells uh, Abraham himself, that a part of his reward comes out of his being obedient. Verse 18 says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When God calls to Abraham in verses 1 and 2, instructing him to sacrifice his only son, Abraham does not hesitate. Immediately he goes and does what God has commanded. Now, unlike Genesis 18, where God uh, warns Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis 18, Abraham prays on behalf of Sodom to, that, that God might spare that great city. But here in Genesis 22, when commanded to take his only son and sacrifice him, Abraham doesn't even question God's command here. 
Abraham is unflinchingly obedient. It seems that even as he holds the knife over Isaac's body to slaughter his son, as the text says, there's not even a hint in Abraham of doing anything other than what God has commanded. Friends, where does Abraham get this kind of obedience? Where does this man, just with, without hesitancy, without pausing, just unflinchingly obey the voice of the Lord? Some people are obedient to their overseers because they have been beaten and abused into submission. Some people obey the voice of those who are over them because they've been forced to do it, threatened if they do not. Those have learned, that, uh, learned not to question the motives of their superior because questioning leads to pain. But that has not been Abraham's experience with God. In fact, quite the opposite. Every time in Abraham's life, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis up to this point, every time in Abraham's life that he has been disobedient or distrusting or slow to obey, God has graciously and patiently corrected Abraham, uh, continued to provide for him, and brought him back to trust in God's own promises. Abraham is obedient because he knows the loving, caring, compassionate, kind heart of God who has called him. Abraham is obedient. We also learn that Abraham has deep faith. He has an abiding faith, a faith that is not just on the surface, but but deep down in the bones of his soul, if we could say it that way. We already know from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God's promises. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We already know Abraham is a man of faith. But to this point, we have not yet seen Abraham's faith in God on full display. We've heard, we've known that Abraham has faith, but we've not yet seen the, the full exercise of his faith, if you will. He has not had his faith really put to the test in a, in a direct way yet in his life until here as Isaac, his son, is probably somewhere between 8 and 13 years old or so where God tests his faith this way. Charles Spurgeon says of this passage, he says, Note here that God did not try Abraham, did not test Abraham like this at the beginning, like in chapter 12 when he first gave Abraham the promise. After these things, God tried, God tested Abraham, Spurgeon says. There was a course of education to prepare him for this great testing time. And the Lord knows how to educate us up to such a point that we can endure in years to come what we could not endure today. Just as today he may make us stand firm under a burden which ten years ago would have crushed us into the dust. After all the instruction God had given him, after close communion with God, receiving the Spirit of God into his soul in rich abundance, after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham is a man of deep faith, deep faith that is here tested. There are a lot of people in the world that are people of great faith. A great example, or or, uh, a, a great illustration of a terrible example, would be compulsive gamblers. Compulsive gamblers are people of great faith when you really think about it. They have faith in their favorite teams. They have faith in their betting schemes. They have faith in their systems for placing bets and whether to bet, you know, uh, uh, against the line or against the spread. I don't know what those things mean, but I hear them on the radio. And their compulsive gamblers are willing to demonstrate their faith. They're willing to put their faith to action by wagering massive portions of their livelihood on the teams and the systems and the schemes that they trust will pay out for them in the end. Ultimately, 
Gamblers have great faith and display great faith, but they put their faith on the line in ultimately untrustworthy sources. There's a reason that, that players play the game. There are a reason that horse, there's a reason that horses run the race because nothing is a given. Nothing is certain. And in gambling, nothing is certain. If you're tempted to go to the sports book this afternoon and wager something on the NCAA tournament, don't do it. Don't have faith in your own ability to guess how the NCAA tournament is going to end. I think last night there was only one through all of the rounds of basketball that have been, all the games of basketball that have been played only in the first weekend of the NCAA tournament until one of the games last night, there was only one bracket in the whole world that had been registered electronically that was still perfect. And by the end of the night last night, we're not even out of the the second round of the NCAA tournament, that bracket has been busted. There are no more perfect brackets. So have as much faith in your system. Uh, Someone like Lehigh is going to beat Duke one year. (laughs) Betting schemes rarely, rarely do not benefit the house or the bookie. And systems and teams always look good on paper, but they rarely ever do what they promise to accomplish. So gamblers are people of great faith, but faith in the wrong thing. Faith in things that will not come through. They are people of faith in systems that will not prevail and in players that will fail or be injured or not live up to the hype. But friends, not so with God. God is not like our betting schemes. God is not like our favorite basketball team. God has already proved to Abraham in several places that he is worthy of Abraham's faith. That he can be counted upon to do what he has promised. So we read in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith in Hebrews in the New Testament, verses 17 and 19, these verses. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Through this long, this lifelong course of education by God, Abraham's faith in God has grown so great that he believes at this point in Genesis chapter 22 that even if God calls him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, that God is powerful enough, faithful enough, uh, trustworthy enough that he can raise Isaac from the dead to still be the progenitor of innumerable offspring. This is how great Abraham's faith in God is. Abraham is obedient. He's a man of deep faith. And we find finally about Abraham that he is dependent upon God's sufficiency. God's sufficiency. His his ability to, to do whatever needs to be done. On that long walk to the hills of Moriah, Isaac asks his father, Dad, see the fire and the wood. I'm carrying the wood on my back. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? We're on our way to to worship God, to, to, to sacrifice to him. We have everything we need, but the most important thing. Abraham does not play coy here. He, he doesn't tell Isaac a story to uh, try to explain away what's going on. Abraham doesn't tell a lie to his son. Neither does he necessarily reveal all that God has revealed to him. But he does say, with great dependence upon God's sufficiency... God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
We don't have a lamb with us. God will provide. God will provide for himself, Abraham says, the lamb for a burnt offering. There's so much packed into these five words. God will provide for himself. There's a lot there. God will provide for himself. First, just in the first three words, God will provide. These three words out of the mouth of Abraham indicate that God is the great provider. Abraham knows intimately, personally, the ability of God to provide for him. God has provided Abraham land to dwell in when he left Haran according to the call of God. God has provided Abraham with much wealth and physical prosperity at the hands of other kings. Abraham has become rich because of, uh, at the hands of Pharaoh and out of the treasury of Abimelech. God has provided Abraham at 100 years old a son. If nothing else, Abraham has in his life come to know and believe that God is the great provider. God will provide, says Abraham to his son. God will provide for himself, for himself, the lamb for a burnt offering. Those two words, for himself, that God provides for himself, lead us to know, to understand that God will, will provide for himself what he requires. Now, now God is infinite in his existence. He's omnipotent in his existence. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He is all-present. There is nothing that God needs. He has everything that is necessary for his existence within himself. Yet even here, Abraham notes that if God requires something of man, that God will himself provide it for himself. God requires nothing to be satisfied. He exists in perfect peace within himself. There is nothing in all the created world that God needs. All the same, Abraham realizes that if God has given requirements of his people, God will be the one to provide what he requires. Irrespective of the very scary prospect of slaughtering his own son, Abraham has come to depend upon the total ability of God to provide for himself all that he requires of us. We just see how much dependence is, is, is illustrated in Abraham's life upon God in these verses. How much he, he depends and trusts and relies upon God's ability to provide. All at once we are in this moment reading, God will provide for himself the lamb for an offering. We're all at once thrust forward to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us your rebellion against God, your rejection of his authority in your life. Uh, I, having done the same, deserve death, physical death and spiritual death. And for us to have life with God, we must be perfectly righteous like he is. We must be perfectly holy. We must be perfectly perfect in every way as God is. Yet we also know that we all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious perfection. What God requires for our sin to be forgiven, for our sin to be paid for, to be dealt with, for our, our sin to be, uh, the, His wrath against our sin to be satisfied is death. And we find in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, He who is God in flesh and one with the Father, that God has in Jesus, His own Son, provided for Himself, the one who will die to satisfy His just anger, His just wrath against our sin. 
The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the wonderful, beautiful, awesome truth of who God is. That though you and I in our sin have made it impossible to be right with God, He has provided for Himself the sacrifice that will make us clean. Man, how great is this God. What we learn in this test of Abraham is that Abraham is obedient, that he has deep faith, that he is dependent upon the, the, the sufficiency, the capability of God to provide all things. We also learn some things about God in this passage, and I'm so glad that we do. We see what the test reveals to us about God. We learn first that, that this God, that the Lord, is not like other little g gods. In contrast to Canaanite gods, the, the, the false gods that the Canaanite people worshipped in the day of Abraham, the Lord does not require the death of children to make him happy. Verse 1, tell, uh, verse one of chapter 22 says to this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. That word, uh, that, that phrase, God tested Abraham from the outset, lets us know, it gives us a hint that what God is doing um, uh, is, to, is to find out what's in Abraham. That, that God is not going to bring the following uh, uh, scenario to the conclusion that it may seem at the first, right? That God is doing something more than what's on the surface. The Canaanite gods, the ones that the Canaanite people worshipped, gods like Baal and Moloch, often required, not that they were real gods, but the people in their minds uh, came up with these gods who required them to sacrifice their children for uh, uh, bountiful crops at harvest time. To sacrifice their children so that rains would come in the rainy season. To sacrifice their children, burning them on altars to these false gods so that the gods would be pleased with them. We learn that the Lord is not like these gods. He does not require the death of children to make him happy. We learn that God is not capricious. That is, his his, uh, disposition toward us is not dependent upon what we do or what we don't do. That God's uh, disposition toward us is always loving, always caring, always wanting to bring us to repentance. God is not swayed by our works one way or the other. We also know that God is not a liar. God who has promised to Abraham the son who would be the beginning, who would be the the first fruits of this blessing of of offspring that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the the grains of sand on the seashore, that God is going to make good on his promise. He's not a liar. He's not going to require uh, Isaac to die for his own happiness. God tested Abraham to show him that that the Lord is not like other gods. We also learn that the Lord is sufficient to provide. We've seen this already illustrated in in Abraham's own uh, trust and dependence upon the sufficiency of God, but we see it actively demonstrated by God himself. Verse 13 of our chapter this morning says this. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here in this part of Abraham's test, as Abraham is about to go through with sacrificing his son, with slaughtering his son, God intervenes, calling to Abraham the second time now in this passage, saying, Abraham, Abraham, stopping him from going further. At this point, the test is complete, and the ram for a sacrifice in the place of Isaac has been provided. 
Remember, Abraham said God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. And here God provides exactly that. He does just as Abraham trusts that he will. He has provided for himself the sacrifice for the burnt offering. Here we find that not only does God not require child sacrifice for his own happiness, for his own pleasure, but instead he provides the substitute of his own he provides a substitute out of his own ability to provide. The sudden appearance of the ram here caught in the thicket does indicate to us that it is a miraculous appearance. That this ram was not stuck there before. But just as Abraham, uh, God calls to Abraham, re- telling him, stop, this is, this is as far as I have ever intended you to go. I have seen your faith, and Abraham, you have seen your faith, and now here I am providing for you. So significant is God's sufficiency to provide that Abraham names the very place where he was going to sacrifice his son, but then received out of God's provision the substitute in its place. Abraham names this place the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. That's the name of this place. God will provide. If we learn anything about God in this passage, it is that, that God will provide what he requires. God is not like other gods. He is sufficient to provide for himself what he requires. And third, we learn that God is unfailing in his promises. God is unfailing in his promises. The test we find is not ultimately to prove to God that Abraham believes him but to prove to Abraham that his faith is in a God who never fails. In in many ways, this test is more for Abraham than it is for God. God already knows Abraham's heart, but but God desires Abraham to know his own heart. Everything in the life of Abraham since his calling by God in Genesis 12 has been to cause us to ask the question, will God make good on his promises? So many times in Genesis, we've already seen the, the promises of Genesis 12 at stake or at risk. A son maybe or maybe not being born. A wife who may or may not actually uh, 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 be united to Abraham long enough to bear him a son. We've seen the question of uh, potentially land being taken away. All, all, across, all up to this point in Genesis, we have been asking ourselves the question, will God really make good on his promises? God has been clear all along the way that he will fulfill what he has promised to Abraham. He's said that to Abraham over and over. He's demonstrated it in small ways over and over. But Abraham, though he believes God, has not always trusted fully that God would not fail to keep his promises. We see Abraham making at least two major mistakes in lying to foreign kings about who his wife is in a way that causes his wife to be abducted by these other kings and taken as, uh, as their wife. Right? The promise being put at risk by Abraham's own distrust or uncertainty about God's ability to provide. Abraham has a son by another woman before Isaac is ever born. Abraham, uh, uh, as we just said, lies twice about his wife's identity to protect his own life. Faithful Abraham sometimes wavers in his faith and requires subtle correction by God all throughout his life. Verses 16 and 18 read this. God said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We read in there the reaffirmation of all of the promises of land, of offspring, and of blessing to the nations, affirmed yet one more time by God. This test 
ultimately reveals more to us and more to Abraham about himself than it does about God. It reveals to Abraham and to us that at this late stage in his life, when literally Abraham's whole life and hope for a future is on the altar before God, that Abraham really does now finally trust God with all things. And as he's about to show his faith in God by killing his own son, God interrupts him to say, Stop! This, Abraham, this, this is how I've been asking you to trust me. This far, this much. So do not kill your son. He is the promise that I gave you. And he is the the vein through which I will bless you and your offspring forever. Abraham, I swore by myself once and I'll swear by myself again. Know this, Abraham, I will do this. I will keep my promises. Trust me. We learn a lot about Abraham. He's obedient. He's a man of faith. They trust he depends upon God's sufficiency. We learn a lot about God in this passage. That he's not like other gods. That he is sufficient to provide. And that he always makes good on his promises. And so as we reflect upon the God that the Lord is and reveals himself continually to be, consistently to be in Genesis 22, and the kind of faith that Abraham has and exhibits in this passage, my challenge to us, my exhortation to us is this. To ask God for true faith. As a Christian, as a member of our church, ask God for true faith. Ask God for a faith that works. We learn two things about what true faith is from this passage today. First of all, we learn that true faith, a faith that works, true faith believes the faithful God who has proved that he is sufficient. True faith rests in the faithful one, rests upon the faithful one, rests upon God himself who has proved uh, uh, that he can provide for himself all that he requires of us. The question to ask ourselves this morning is, do I have faith? Do I really trust the person and promise and provision of God? The answer to that question that you ask yourself this morning will be found in how you live your life and how tightly you cling to the confidence that you have in God's sufficiency to be all that we need. That which we truly trust in will become evident in the course of our lives. When the pressure of the world comes upon us, when we grieve and mourn, when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, we will run to that which we have the most faith in. If in this life, all of our faith is put into our friends, we will surround ourselves with them in in times of crisis. If our faith is placed first and primarily in our family, we will cling to them in times of difficulty. If our faith is placed in money or possessions, if that is what we trust most, it is what we will prioritize and look to for salvation. But all of these things will prove in the final test to be insufficient. Your friends cannot meet your every need. Your family will fail you at some point. Money and possessions will run out. There is only one who has never failed. There is only one who will never fail. And there is only one who provides real salvation from sin, real spiritual sustenance in times of crisis and in times of testing. And that one faithful one is God. God who is sufficient to provide for himself the sacrifice for our sins. And God himself who is sufficient to carry our heaviest burden and to walk with us through every dark and deadly valley. 
Ask God for that kind of faith. To trust in Him who has proved Himself both faithful and sufficient. Ask God for true faith. Ask God for a faith that works. We know from our passage this morning and from other places in the Bible that true faith, real trust in God, works. It functions. It, it, it works itself out into the habits of our lives and our actions because true faith values the giver over his gifts. True faith works. True faith acts on obedience because it values the giver over his gifts. Real faith is not passive. And true faith is never alone. It's never just superficial. It's never just a a mind thing. It's never just a head thing. True faith uh, starts in our heads, moves to our hearts, and works its way out into our hands. We agree and affirm, so no questions about this, that we are saved from our sins by God's gracious gift alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that our works do nothing to prove our merit, to prove our value to God. The things I do in this life have no effect to prove to God that I'm worthy of receiving His grace, okay? I am saved, you are saved by God's grace, by His gift alone, as you trust in Christ But while we affirm that we are saved by faith alone, we also affirm that we are saved by, we are not saved by faith that is alone. James, the brother of Jesus, illustrates that this is true from Abraham's life as he writes in his letter uh, uh, named after himself, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24. Listen to these words. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, a a Christian, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That is, if you say you believe in Christ, that you have faith in Christ, and yet that faith in Christ does not lead you to live a life that demonstrates your dependency upon Christ, the the way that the Holy Spirit is shaping you into Christ's nature, conforming your will to His, then your faith is dead. If your faith is just a mental assertion, but it's not made its way into your heart and out into your hands, it's not real faith, says James. But someone will say, James continues in verse 18, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works, says James. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now here I want to make a caveat that what James is, James is not saying that we are right with God by the things that we do in this life. James is saying we are made right with God through faith that exercises itself, that finds its, its life in the things that we do. Right? Real faith that works, that acts in obedience to God's commands, is a faith that has justified you with God. Right? So it's not your works that make you right with the Father, but if you say you trust Jesus, you ought to have a life with, with fruit of that faith. 
Real trust in Jesus will result in obedience to him and works done for others and in life that are keeping with his commands. So when we have come to embrace the truth that God is enough, that Jesus Christ is the object of our greatest delight, there is then nothing we will not do in obedience to him. That is what we see in Abraham's life. He has come to see that God is enough. That to be right with God is all that he needs. And so in light of that faith, there is nothing that Abraham will not do in obedience to God, even offering his own son as a sacrifice at God's command. Real faith, true faith, always values the giver over his gifts. Real faith is willing to let go of everything to have more of God, to have more of Christ. Abraham puts his faith to work in giving up his own son to receive more of relationship with God. The early church who knew the giver of their salvation, Jesus, gave away their money and their resources to those among them in need because in Christ they knew that they already had all that they really needed. True faith works itself out in the life of the Christian in this way, that we live our whole lives with all that God has provided for us in his sufficiency. We live our whole lives with all of that with open hands before him. Our children held in open hands before God. Our grandchildren held in open hands before God. The finances, the the material things in this life that God has provided for us held with open hands before God who gave them. Our church building we hold with open hands before him. Our plans for retirement we hold with open hands before God. Our hopes for a career we hold with open hands before God. Our desires for a wife or a husband we hold with open hands before God. Our plans for our summer vacation. Our comforts and preferences. All these things that God has given and allowed us to entertain we hold with open hands before him. To give more or to take away at his pleasure and in his infinite wisdom that we might only have more of him. Naked we came into the world. Naked we shall leave it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. All the same, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, if you'd give me more, then, then you'll give me more and I'll still hold that with open hands before you to take away if you desire. Or to call me to give to someone else. This is a a really, really hard way to live our lives. Not not hard because it's difficult, but hard because it's challenging. It's hard to say to God, God, you've provided me with, with three beautiful daughters to love and to cherish, to lead, to love Christ. And if you would call one of them to the mission field in a dangerous place of the world one day, I just need to be okay with that. God, you gave them to me. You have every right to take them away, to take them wherever you want them to be. So, God, they are yours. You have have entrusted them to me for a time, but whether you allow me to live near them my whole life or you take them to a difficult place, God, they're yours to do with what you will. Grandparents, I, I imagine that this is probably even harder to do with your grandchildren. There are times in life where parents are going, God, take my children away. But grandparents, you know, I, I just I watch my parents and Nikki's parents with our daughters. They're always wanting more of their grandchildren. They want to be closer to their grandchildren. They could care less about me and Nikki. But if they're close to the girls, they're happy. They lo- it's hard. Grandparents and several of you are in here. 
Do you hold your grandchildren and God's will for their lives with open hands before God? Are you trying to hold on to them when they come to you and say, Grandpa, God, I think, I think God's calling me to, to um, maybe to South Sudan to uh, minister among difficult people in a war-torn place in the world. He's calling me to take the gospel there. Is your first response to pray against God's calling in their life? That they might not go to a dangerous place? Or, Grandpa, do you take your grandson or granddaughter by the hand and say, if that's what God is calling you to do, I, I think you need to be obedient. Let me pray with you. And would you pray for me that God would just help me to have the, the ability to let go, to let go of you and to trust, trust you to his care? What about in our plans for retirement? The same thing, right? We, we, we make plans all our career long for how we're going to sustain ourselves in retirement, all the plans that we're going to have to do, the traveling that we're going to, uh, traveling that we're going to do, and maybe some volunteering, some, some things that we want to serve in, in our retirement, t- more time spent with grandkids, right? What if, what if, dear senior citizen in retirement, God has called you to leave this place you have invested your whole life in to go to the mission field? Are you willing to hold your plans for retirement with open hands before God to say, God, if in my golden years and the twilight years of my life, you would call me to serve Christ in difficult places, I'll go. I'll leave my grandchildren to go where you would call me. This is a difficult life to live. Not difficult because it's hard to do, but difficult because it's challenging. To have, to have because of our faith in God, lives that, 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 that are characterized as being just blank checks before the Lord. Say, Here, here's my signature, God. When I, when I committed to following Christ, I committed to following Him with all of my life. And so I just signed here on this line, and now you fill in the amount. You fill out the calling. You take me wherever you would take me. You, you call me to sacrifice whatever you would call me to sacrifice because I know that you're sufficient and I trust you. God, help us to have a faith that works. Amen. Dear brother and sister, learn from this text today that there is no greater reward, there's no greater blessing, no greater gift than to know God himself, to know Jesus, the Son of God personally, and to know him more intimately each day of our life. Everything else is expendable. Nothing else will match the joy of knowing Him in faith. So loose the grip of pride and selfishness and fear that you have on the things of this life that you may have all the more strength to hold tightly to the greatest gift, the giver Himself. Ask God this morning for true faith in Him. True faith that proves itself in your living moment after moment. May we have faith like Abraham in Genesis 22 ready to give it all to the Lord at His command. Let's pray together.